Lord Jesus, we thank you uh, for being in our midst, uh, and we pray that you would come and speak to us this morning, uh, that we might get a better idea of the way that things are in the world and the way that things are with us, uh, but above all, uh, who you are and how you operate in our lives and your great love for us and what you do for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to show only a couple slides. Uh, Lauren and I went to Belize in December, and I thought you might... I'm just kidding. We're not going to do a Belize slide. But um, there are, are a couple things that have happened recently to me that have caused me to scratch my head, and it's about my generation. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but I, I want you to see them simply at face value, uh, because... Uh, some of the slides I'm going to show you uh, contain some controversial information regarding socio-political issues, and that's not the issue. Uh, I just want you to see uh, some interesting facts and figures, and, uh, and then we'll talk about the other things. But uh, the things that have happened to me recently that have uh, caused me to think uh, what's going on in our world today, uh, enough about me. Uh, now, what do you think of me um, is, is kind of how I feel like the way that things are going. And the two things that have come up recently in the news is one is uh, more adults ever than ever, ever, ever identify themselves as pro-life over pro-choice. And I didn't have a graph for it, uh, but it's even more so among the demographic that we would call emerging adults. So 18 to 30, that it's actually... Uh, it's, it's almost 60% of people between the ages of 18 and 30 would identify themselves as pro-life. Okay? I'm not talking about pro just th keep that statistic in your mind. At the same time, there are 53% of adults in America that would identify themselves as being okay with same-sex marriage. And amongst the 18 to 30 crowd, again, that number is actually about 60%. Okay, so you have those two statistics in your mind. Now, if, um, if you look at the graphs and, and you think about them, um, most people in our culture, and a lot of uh, cultural watchers, uh, feel like their brains are being twisted. Because on the one hand, these are two ideas that they thought were completely incompatible. Right? Statistically speaking, back in the day, if you ask somebody, hey, are you pro-life? They would say, yes, I'm pro-life. Well, how do you feel about same-sex marriage? They would say, I'm against it. Right? Those, those statistics would be parallel. But now what we see, especially with the age group of 18 to 30, that almost 60, around 60% identify themselves as pro-life, but also in favor of same-sex marriage. That's kind of interesting if you're, a, if you're a statistician type person. Why? How did that happen? Well, um, how could it, these two views possibly coexist in one person? That's the question that a lot of people, including Gallup, and these polls were done, by the way, in 2012. Um, the dates aren't on them, but I have them if you want them. And what... I've come to see and come to realize in conversations uh, with folks is that for them, these are not two positions that would be at odds with one another. Uh, but what you find in the culture, especially amongst emerging adults, 18 to 30, is the ultimate importance of the self. 
and it goes way beyond whatever floats your boat. You know, we always heard if it make if it feels good, do it. It it goes way, way, way beyond that. And it's really up to every individual to determine where they're going to go in life and what is going to happen. And you see that in one, the slide with um, the pro-life versus pro-choice, the whole idea that they would articulate when they were doing these polls is that every individual has the right to life to pursue whatever it is that they want to pursue. And who is anybody to tell anybody what they should do? Self-determination is the biggest motivating factor for this statistic. And they basically say the same thing for this one, that if that's what they want to do, then that's perfectly fine. Even if I think that it might be wrong, I still think that they ought to be able to have a certain degree of self-determination to allow them to do what they want to do. Again, politics aside, we're not going to talk about the, um, the story behind the story here, except to use it as a ruler on what people between 18 and 30 are saying and feeling. The other thing that I've noticed recently, I've decided to start listening to Top 40 Radio again. It's pretty amazing. And, um, I mean, the level of artistry is not to be believed. Um, um, and uh, very clever, very clever. And uh, Lauren, I started laughing because I was like, was that a human being or a robot? What am I listening to? And, they, and she said both. She said it was both. So, uh, but one of the things that I noticed about the lyrics, um, where we're from in South Carolina on the coast, um, it, do you all know about beach music? I'm not talking about... Um, the Beach Boys, I'm talking about the Platters and the Spinners and people like that. And um, one of the things that you'll find in that music is that you hear a lot of songs that go something like this. Baby, I wronged you. I'm so sorry. Please take me back. I mean, that's kind of the, I mean, a ton of them are like that. And as I was listening to the radio, there are no more songs like that. It's all, you blew it. So long, pal. Have a nice life. That's what they all are. And I'm thinking, oh, my. my. And, um, and I'm sort of uh, I'm, I'm dumbfounded uh, about that. And, uh, and if, it's, if it's not that, it's um, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Right? And that is, if you were to look at other statistics, that's the story behind the story is that we live in a time of complete uncertainty, especially economically. If you're graduating from college, um, you know how difficult it is to find a job, and, and uh, it's... You know, I, you know, you can always go back and get your master's in English. But, you know, whatever it is, um, it's, it's it. so if you listen to the radio, what you hear is a lot of um, uh, let's make the most of it because tonight we're going to die young. All right, have a good time now because uh, when you get out of the dance club, uh, it's back to the real world and the reality that you don't have a job. You don't have a job. And, um, and that has increased... Um, the number of what are called helicopter parents. Do you all know about these people? None of you are helicopter parents in Birmingham. Um, but there was a Washington Post article that talked about helicopter parenting. And uh, to the extent that not just are you you're taking a vested interest in the future of your child, but one of the things that a lot of interviewers are noticing and at places like Bain and McKenzie and Boston Consulting Group is that they're surprised at the number of parents who are showing up at their children's job interviews. And, of course, if they get the job... These children, who are 22 and graduated from a fine university, uh, they're 
consulting Fortune 500 companies, and yet it's necessary for their parents to be there at the job interview. And if they don't get the job, uh, interviewers are shocked at the number of parents who call and say, how dare you? How dare you not? So um, naturally, children love this approach. Children really love when this happens. Uh, so what happens? Children push away. They, they look for a place where they can be wholly independent. And I'll talk to a lot of moms and I'll say, especially if this happens with boys, one of the things that they struggle with is, I don't know what's going on in my child's life. They're not telling me. They're not telling me what's going on in their life. And even when I try to, um, to get them to call me, they, you know, they just, yeah, all right, love you too, talk to you next Sunday. You know, and that's, that's what they're getting. And so how do they get like this? How do they get like this? Now, let me preface it with saying, it's not that this generation is any worse than any other generation. Sin is equally distributed across generations. It's just the way that it manifests itself. Um, but the way that this generation got this way is because of who taught them, the adults in their lives. Now, of course, there are exceptions to every rule, but that's right. Did you, was that Jeff? Oh, that was, okay, oh, good. I thought it was maybe uh, Jeff Jones. I wanted you to say something. So, um, so it's, it's, it's a result of, of that and um, schools, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's just the culture that we live in. And this, there's a book that Christian Smith wrote uh, call, that I've been reading uh, recently that's very interesting. And uh, the name of the book is, um, oh, where in the world is it? Uh, the Dark Side of Emerging Adulthood, but it has a much catchier title. That's the subtitle, uh, which I always look at. Uh, the, other, the other main title will make you buy it. Um, but uh, one of the things that he's just dumbfounded by is the number of people who try to articulate uh, what uh, they are saying, and they will use a lot of words like or phrases, I don't know or like, or I guess. And if you've ever talked to someone between the ages of 18 and 30, you've heard them speak this way. I mean, I believe this because that's kind of the way that I was brought up, but you know, it's like an individual decision, but I don't know, I guess, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not exactly, like that's, all of the quotes in this book said exactly, uh, exactly that. And this generation has uh, become uh, known as the nuns. Because, so these younger millennials who are, um, who are being born between 1990 and 1994, um, and I'm not in the top, believe it or not, even though I'm young and youthful, I'm not in the, I'm in the Xer. So, uh, so young, they, uh, the question was asked, do you have any religious affiliation, right? Do you, do you claim to be a Christian? Do you claim uh, to be a follower of Oprah Winfrey? Anything, just anything. And... Um, <laughs> So you've got the greatest generation, thank you, Tom Brokaw, um, and only 5% born between 1913 and 1927 uh, say that they have no religious identity or affiliation. And then, of course, the silent, you've got the boomers, the Gen Xers, 21%. So that's one in five. That's a pretty significant number. But then you get up to the, the millennials uh, born uh, in the 80s and, um, and those born in the 90s, and 34%, one in three individuals uh, born 81 to 94-ish 
If you ask them, do you have any religious affiliation? They would say, no. I don't believe really in anything. Now, I'm not saying that the entire generation... This is not, we're, we're, you know, we're all going to fall off the face of the earth. Uh, we're in terrible hands with this generation. Uh, so let's just all move to Tahiti. Not a bad idea, though. Um, but what we also find is that amongst that 30% and 34% category, 75% of those were raised with some sort of religious affiliation. So three out of four of those could tell you the story, probably. They could probably tell you uh, something about religion, their faith, and of course being in America, Christianity. They could tell you about uh, Christianity. And this is an incredibly difficult generation uh, to minister to uh, from the church's perspective. Uh, the Advent gets lots and lots of publications, uh, and the ones that catch my eye are the seminary publications. I like to look at those because you would think that they would have a vested interest in what is going on in the world around them, and typically they're disappointing across the board, regardless of their theology. They tend to be pretty disappointing uh, because they don't really get uh, to the heart of the matter. Um, and so I looked at a couple of them about what, and almost when this poll came out, which is pretty recent, which is pretty recent, the most recent edition of these seminary publications, almost every single one of them addressed this issue of what are we going to do with the millennial generation, this emer these emerging adults, and especially this group, one-third of them, that are called the nuns. Not habit nuns, but nuns. N-O-N-E-S, that type of nuns. And especially knowing what we know about them and their great understanding of self-determination and that um, basically um, what their biggest thing is is they base their moral decisions on how society will, per will perceive them. They base their moral decisions on how society will see them. And so what determines what is good or bad in their lives is how will people perceive me. And so, because of that, there's a great reticence to speak out about anything. And yet, and yet the church's approach, here's a, here's a quote from, um, from one of the church uh, publications, and it was written by a student who's going to be ordained into the Episcopal Church. And this is, so, if the church itself could be better at encouraging all vocations ordained in lay, it could likely stem the tide of nuns especially in the case of millennials who often feel unable to locate their purpose in a world that seems so far beyond their control. Great. For it is when all people in the church are living to their utmost that the church will be strongest. Okay. So they've got the diagnosis right, but here's, here's the problem. In a generation that is, doesn't know what they believe and, and they are reticent to speak out on anything, really... Um, that doesn't sound like they're really motivated to get involved in much of anything. Uh, we were talking the other day with somebody and, uh, who's involved in ministry, and just as an offhand comment, they said, oh, well, you know those young millennials, they love social justice. And I just thought, really? Do they? Do they really? Uh, one, uh, in this uh, Christian Smith book, one of the things that they said is that uh, they're really not interested in helping anybody else but themselves or their friends or family. In fact, one of the questions they asked, they asked, if you saw somebody on the side of the road in need of help, would you pull over? 
90% said no. Until they finally got down to, they find, and they, they had no agenda, but finally they, they thought, what question could we possibly ask to get them to pull over? And they said, if you saw a child in a burning car, would you pull over? And they said, probably. <laughs> one, ch- one, one millennial asked if it was unleaded or a diesel vehicle, knowing that a diesel vehicle would not explode but simply burn. So um, there's a real reticence to actually get involved and um, I know that, that I'm not trying to criticize Karen, but, but the whole idea of, well, we just need to get them more involved and give them things to get plugged into isn't going to work because lots of churches have been trying to do this and it's not working. Why? Because everything that I've just told you means absolutely nothing. You can actually forget everything that I've totally told you. I could be up here reading from the phone book and it would be just as valid because you and me and they are all the same. And what they need is what we all need. And what has always worked will continue to work. Well, that doesn't mean that, that we may not, you know, that we may look at, at repackaging things. Like, you know, in, in the children's ministry here, we don't say, okay, we're going to sing through the entire book of Psalms today. I mean, the kids would pack it out, right? It wouldn't happen. Uh, so you have to meet people where they are. But one of the, the hard word to this generation, which is a hard word to every generation, is, is what it is to all of us, where Jesus says in both Matthew and John, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And in John, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls onto the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now, um, in a world that says that what to thine own self be true, worry about yourself, take care of yourself, uh, you are all that matters, this is a really hard word. I've told you about the little uh, church in Fairfax, South Carolina, where they don't have very many lay readers. And uh, when the, this one lay reader, and I've heard him do this before, uh, when he gets up to read, he's also the junior warden there. Uh, if it comes to a word in the Old Testament that he cannot pronounce, he'll simply say something like, and then Jehoshaphat went to hard word. And then he would continue in. <laughs> um, um, well, this... This is a hard word um, uh, to this to this generation. And let me tell you, the church, the biggest problem that the church has ever had is they fall in lockstep and they get dictated to by these statistics. And, uh, and then we end up actually enabling them. And so what this generation would say is, I need some building blocks. I need some tools. I need you to give me something that... Um, that I can uh, wrap my hands around. I need uh, some stepping stones in order to, uh, to move my life. And it has to be practical. It has to be completely practical. Uh, otherwise, I'm simply not interested. And, and that's the statistic. So uh, a majority of, uh, of millennials, of that one in three, um, 
a good number of them uh, over uh, something like, um, well, let me just say, the vast majority of religiously unaffiliated Americans are not actively seeking to find a church or other religious group to join. Leaving aside atheists or agnostics, just 10% of those who describe their current religion as nothing in particular say they are looking for a religion that is right for them. Wouldn't that be nice? 88% say they are not. So only 10% really say, hey, give me some practical tips. But 88% are saying, I don't really care. I, I just, I don't care. And you can say whatever you want. I, I don't care. And, uh, and you would think uh, the last thing that they want to hear is, you've got to die in order to live. Uh, you have to give over yourself in order to actually find what it is that you're looking for in life. And where this all started to go by the wayside, and Cameron uh, did some classes on it, I think, and you can go back and listen online, is it began in youth ministry. And basically the line in youth ministry was, here's Christianity. Don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex, and you'll be okay. And somewhere along the line, the kids equated that with Christianity. Be good, and you'll be okay. And then they went off to college. Being a Christian, according to that definition, is really hard. And so what happened was that they went off to college, and they started to slip or backslide, as we might say, and they might try to get up and go to church, but they end up, uh, after a while, feeling like a hypocrite, and they wonder, well, I guess I wasn't a Christian after all, and they completely bail on it, and then they end up in this category. All right. Now, thankfully, the Advent doesn't do that, um, although we do say you shouldn't do those things. Um, that's not the crux, not the core of Christianity. Uh, but understanding uh, the gospel of God's great love for them and what he does for them and what he uh, will do for them and has done for them uh, is absolutely essential because it's in those times. I mean, it's amazing the number of people in their 20s who come up to me and they say, you know, I really want to be a Christian. I just don't feel like I'm a Christian. I feel like uh, that I'm the complete opposite. And I want to say, have you ever read the Psalms? <laughs> Have, have you ever read what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7? Uh, that you are not uh, a stranger or to, to this uh, dilemma. And they all think that they're alone in this. They all think that they're alone in this. Because one of the amazing things about this generation is that even though they're totally looking inward at themselves and the individual is king, they're completely connected to the rest of the world. And a German survey recently came out that said that Facebook causes people to be depressed. Uh, because when you get on Facebook, what do you see? Gosh, they look good in that dress. I hate them. You know? Or look at how perfect. Because on Facebook, you can project an identity that is a lot better than your real identity. Like I can put up on my, um, you know, my Facebook page pictures of my children in cute bows and smocking everywhere and all that, and everyone said, look at how cute their family is. I'm not putting the picture up where my middle child bit me on the neck the other day. Like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not putting that up. Um, and so everybody gets this impression, like, oh, look at how I want to... And, um, and yet, it really is just a surface understanding of, of where people are in lives. And so this generation spends a lot of time hiding. Hiding 
what they're really like from the world. And there's no place for honesty. No place at all. My small group is reading a book by Tim Keller called Every Good Endeavor. Is that it, Meg? Yep. Every Good Endeavor. And, uh, and in it, it talks about in job interviews how interviewees are willing to lie basically because it's not hurting anybody and everybody else is doing it and, um, and just that they're able to do that without um, any sense of guilt. And it's, it's because... Um, the greater fear is not being caught in a lie. And if they are caught, they can always rationalize it. Uh, but the greater fear is that someone would actually find out who they really are. Who they really are. And what we've, uh, another thing that I've, I've noticed too with all of this, in, with being an individual, nobody is connecting with anybody else. Nobody really has relationships anymore. And uh, Seneca, the Roman philosopher, said, to be everywhere is to be nowhere. There's not a sense of place in any of their lives. And if, uh, if you are, well, I've got it right here. If you are walking down the street and you're right here, you're not here, right? You're, if, if you're here, you're not, you're not here. Uh, you're not here at all. And um, so there's a complete lack of connection. And that is one area in which they will articulate and say, I, I, I want to connect, I need to find some way to connect in a way that is human and that I can be known as I am and still loved and accepted. And that's a really hard thing to find, except at the church. Because that's the idea, that the church would be a hospital for sinners and not a country club for the righteous, and that people would be able to be that and, and still be loved and accepted, and yet, and yet at the same time, be challenged with where they are. If you're at a church that's not challenging you, and think like this morning in the sermon, the thing that got me about I listened to all of it, but the one thing uh, that really stuck out was Frank talking about the bumper stickers, right? When he said, you know, being mad at the person who had um, whatever it is on their and and not liking that person just because they're bumper stickers, and well, what what bumper stickers does God see when He looks at you, right? And, um, and that doesn't make me say, I hate Frank Limehouse. I mean, you may, you may, uh, but, but it just makes me think, shoot. Right? Because a little more of my backstage has crept out onto the front stage. Right? A little more has been made known. And sometimes I am even uh, oblivious to it. But what is happening in the church today is that, uh, and this is a, uh, a quote uh, from Rod Rosenblatt, um, our, our friend here at the Advent, um, because what he says is the people who have rejected Jesus in the, in the Bible, if you read the New Testament, either went away sad or mad. They either went away sad or mad at what Jesus had to say. So when uh, the backstage was revealed and uh, they heard about their own bumper stickers, they either went away really angry or they went away really sad. And, uh, and what Rod Rosenblatt said about the mainline Protestant churches as he said, you know what, there isn't enough theology left to make people really sad or mad. There isn't much of anything left in mainline Protestant sermons or curricula except maybe lessons in ethics and perhaps new opportunities for social service. And clearly, that's not working. That's not working. And so as counterintuitive as it is, what this generation desires, although they're not articulating it, is they desire Jesus. The human heart cries out 
for Jesus. Now, if you said that to them, they would say, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And certainly your heart resists that message, and that's why they either go away sad or mad. But so many people have encountered the church from this generation and other generations, and the response has been sad in the sense of, um, I can't keep up. I'm afraid to be honest. Uh, I tried this Christianity thing out, and it's not working because they think it's about doing. They think it's about those building blocks, those steps to head in the right direction to become a better you. Or they go away mad saying, this is killing me. This is absolutely killing me. And I feel like the church uh, are, is full of hypocrites and uh, I'm mad at the church and I hear, heard all about this mercy and forgiveness and yet that's not what I'm being shown because I try to be myself and I know that I need to change and yet uh, I can't. And so they go away mad. And what inevitably happens is uh, in all of us, you know, in spite of the fact that people will say, I don't believe in God, it's a very small percentage of Americans, uh, but even amongst those, they all serve some God. Uh, and even uh, the God that they serve in many cases may not be Jesus, uh, but they serve a God of some sort. In, uh, in Psalm 115, the psalmist writes, their idols, their gods, are silver and gold the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who put their trust in them. So basically, what we're dealing with is a generation of blind, mute, paralyzed individuals. Uh, and if you went up to them and said, get up, they can't get up. Get up and go to church. Come adopt a highway. You know, uh, they are spiritually in, in, incapable of doing that. And so what has to happen is that the church needs to come along, as it has for the past 2,000 years, and pick them up and hold them and speak the word of the gospel to them so that it might spring life in them and that they might live, that they might see, that they might feel, that they might hear, that they might believe. And so when it comes to this generation, it's not, it's not that hard. It's not as hard as people want to make it out to be. And the uh, people wanting to predict the, the death of the church, and there's no doubt, especially the Episcopal Church, we're losing more and more members than, uh, more members than most denominations are, and uh, we have an aging uh, demographic. Uh, but that doesn't bother me. Because the gospel works. Jesus is still Lord and he still has the power to save. And what we need to do is to continue to put the gospel in front of people and say, this is what Jesus has done for you. And I know that there's a, a, a wanting to say, well, maybe we just need to get more practical. We need to have uh, a sermon on uh, how Jesus can help you ace your job interview without lying. <laughs> right. It won't work. Or, you know, or uh, 10, you know, I've told you about that funny book that was in our old bookstore in my last parish that, uh, that there were two books. One is 
how to have a new kid by Friday. The other one was how to have a new husband by Friday. There was not a book called How to Have a New Wife by Friday. Uh, and, and I went and I told the bookstore uh, uh, manager, I said, take it down. Take it down. And she said, well, why? And I said, if it worked, we'd never have to sell another book in our lives. And yet, these books come out all the time. And these silver bullets that we think, this is the thing that is going to work, never do. Never do. And so when anything, that's not to say we don't do new ventures, but what it does say is that Jesus Christ is the center and the same message that we preach here Sunday after Sunday. Turns out is not, you know, a lot of people will say it's not very practical. It is completely practical because it touches every single area of our lives. So when someone comes into me and says, I'm struggling with this or I'm having a hard time with that, or I'm not doing that. Uh, what I can, or when someone comes and says, I, I'm totally burned out. I'm angry at the church. Or I'm sad with the church. Um, I give them Jesus. I give them Jesus. Because that's what they need to hear. Now, at the same time, uh, there are moments uh, when uh, you do need to say, um, don't do that. Don't do that. And working with young adults, because they do really feel like that they dictate their own thing, it's really not unusual uh, to encounter them doing things that they ought not to do. And they think nothing of it. They think nothing of it at all. And, uh, but the problem in the church normally is, is that even after you approach and try to deal with that issue, and then you give them the gospel, there's a propensity to go back to the law again. There's a propensity to, to, to try to go back uh, to sort of practical living when uh, that's just going to drive people to despair or make them sad. And so really all I was trying to do this morning is um, thoughts with Andrew. Uh, but also, um, I know a lot of y'all um, encounter people from this generation. Uh, a lot of people will lament this generation. Um, but we hope in Jesus. And, um, and I'm surrounded by these folks uh, week in and, and week out. And what you realize is that um, you've just got to be really simple in your message because they are working from nothing. So if I even said to them, uh, well, you don't have to worry about that because Jesus was a substitute for your sins. You know, wakanakafise, say what? You know, I, uh, what? what, what? Um, uh, they, they would look at me like a dog looking at a clock. And so what you have to do is you really have to start from the basics. This is, who, this is who Jesus is. And they're hearing it for the first time. Richard Buse, who was in here last week, talked about that we're sort of returning to a pre-Christian era uh, with Paul at the Areopagus and, um, and this unknown God. Who Jesus is to them is totally unknown. And what they know about Jesus is some sort of weird cultural construct, you know, who... Um, which is not who Jesus is. Uh, so we put forward Jesus as he is, and we let him speak for himself. And we trust the Holy Spirit to move in the lives of people uh, regardless of their age. And uh, I've kind of gotten over, you know, being at, at cocktail parties and, and dinners where, you know, inevitably someone will just abruptly say, knowing that I'm a minister, you know, I just think the church is stupid, and I don't think I really need God. And I don't get offended by that anymore. And I just say, you probably don't. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, 
But at that point, I, I mean, because you clearly, like, they have no idea what they're talking about. And they're clearly making that decision based on some sort of strong emotional event that happened in their life. And so you've got to unpack that. And what you need to do is you need to peel all that back. And, and they need to see Jesus. They need to see Jesus and his wounded hands that are open to them. That's what they need to say. Questions, comments, concerns? That, demog- that demographic is young, and I wonder if they will, they don't need God yet. Um, if when they age and they start experiencing illness and death and just trouble, right. that they will at that time come back or? Yes and no. I mean, it's true where it's true. Um, I hate to say that. But the ones that you do see come back, that kind of stuff happened. Um, but there's still a, a huge, huge demographic that never does come back. And so Cameron would be able to give you the statistics, and I wish that I had them. But something like high schoolers who say that they're Christians who go off to college, uh, or, or people who say that they be, people who say that they become Christians, 80% of them say they became Christians before college. That's a pretty startling. So statistically, of course, God is bigger than statistics. But statistically speaking, most people who become Christians don't post-college. I'm just saying, at a later point in their life, in their 40s, right. and 50s, and bad things happen, right. that they made a lot more than they're trying to do. Right, but the, that's true. But the, what, how do they view the church? And, and the way that the, this generation views the church is they don't like their religion. They're open about that. They don't like their religion. They like what they're able to do for the community. And so they kind of view us as a, a really nice nonprofit. Um, and if, if we stuck to the nonprofit stuff, we'd be okay. So it, it's, I think previous generations at least saw that the church had something to offer. And, and that's becoming less and less the case. And sometimes that's the church's fault. Because the church has allowed themselves to become either just a social justice mission or a, um, a, a sort of psychotherapy. Remember all those churches in Texas that did all those series on sex and marriage? And the one guy actually had a bed up on the, in the chancel area? Inappropriate, uh, but that's what they were doing. And, um, and you know what? It, they packed it out. They packed it out. But you know what? They didn't hear about Jesus once. And these would be considered large evangelical conservative churches, but they, um, all that they were left with was a lot of practical advice. Again, inappropriate. Shannon, Dr. Price. More along that line, though, in thinking about why this generation has become this way do you think it's mostly because churches are less or more reluctant to speak the truth or do you think it's also because parenting styles are more create an environment where the child is the center right and maybe the less vulnerability of adults in uh, in front of their children yes next question i'm just kidding uh no okay let me tell i mean the way the way the statistics break down i don't want to i'll did y'all know that I was a statistician in college? You can't tell, can you? So uh, the way the statistics break down is that the churches, when they were asked about, you know, the, those who did grow up, that the three quarters who totally threw it off, what churches did you grow up in? 
they either grew up in what you would consider liberal mainline churches where they didn't hear anything, or what we would consider fundamental conservative churches where they got a whole lot of law. Right. So th- there was some truth in, in both of those, but what they weren't hearing was the whole package deal of the gospel uh, of who Jesus Christ was. And so uh, funny enough that those are the opposite sides of the same coin, where the liberal church might say, Christians, we need to get out there and we need to love our neighbors. True. Let's start a soup kitchen. Great. Um, but that's a lot of law, right? Uh, the opposite side of that is you know, the fundamentalist approach is Christians, uh, we ought to show our faith by getting out there and, I don't know, uh, handing out uh, gospel tracts on why you should stop drinking on the street corner. Right? I mean, so ironically, it's, they, they're the same thing. They just manifest themselves differently. Uh, and so what is lacking, and there are lots of books written about this um, that we have in the bookstore, is that the church just shut down, especially amongst the evangelicals. They just stopped, everybody stopped preaching the gospel and got real practical. And, um, and, and parents, the thing that I run into, with parents, and I don't know if this is changing, but again, the whole thing of in, ingraining in your children of they need to make their own decisions. So like I, I would hear people about, this is changing. It's not as much as it used to be. But I remember I'll run into a lot of people who will say, I'm not going to get my baby baptized because that's, that's a decision they need to make when they get older. And, of course, what happens? They never make it. Never, ever make it because the parents aren't stepping up and saying, discipling their children. And, of course, it's, they're going to make their decision anyway. Uh, but, again, that, that, there's a lot of layers there. So... Um, yeah, I mean that's you should Lost in Transition. That's the name of the book. You should read it. It's really funny and fascinating. Um, statistics. These were national statistics, mm-hmm. were they not? Do yes. you have any breakdowns by region? Because I would think um, California, uh, for example, Washington State. You know, parts of the right. West might. Be way different from mm-hmm. parts of the, even though things are evening out. Yeah. Um, do do they have breakdowns? You know what? They almost don't do it anymore because there's no such thing, uh, especially amongst that generation. I mean, move to Atlanta, the biggest city in the northern city in the south. I mean, it's, um, uh, and and the same is true uh, everywhere across the nation that people there's no longer a sense of place and. Um, I mean, we're not better than California. Um, <laughs> In fact, in fact, it, here I would say that if there is a difference, here it might be a little bit harder because you have a lot of people in the South that are mad at the church, and that's a real tough road to hoe. Um, so they can say, they might even be able to articulate the gospel, but they can't separate Jesus from the baggage they have with the church. And, and in California, Jesus is just all right with me. <laughs> to quote that, that theologian, Greg Allman. So pray, pray for. I mean, again, this is not about the. Gen, this is, this is get. This is across the board. This is every generation, and um, and yet, um, put your trust in Jesus. Hadn't let us down yet. All right. Anything else? This was actually meant to be like a five-part class, but I couldn't help myself. So maybe we'll do a five-parter, David. What do you think? Okay. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks um, that your arm is never too short to save. And Lord, when our hearts think, well, we need to repackage the gospel and rework it in a way that people can hear it. Uh, Lord, let your Holy Spirit intervene and let the Holy Spirit open the ears of those that those who have ears, let them hear. And Lord, that we would trust in you and your saving work for Lord, it saved wretches such as us and therefore continues to do that great work and that great miracle of salvation in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.